Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a shortage of reproductive medical professionals in Connecticut, leading to wait times for some health services in our state, including in-clinic abortions. But Connecticut's safe harbor law, signed by Governor Lamont in May, will soon allow for advanced practice clinicians, like nurse midwives and physician assistants, to perform first trimester abortions. The change is likely to lessen what is now a two-week wait. Today, where we live, we hear from Amanda Skinner, a nurse midwife and CEO and president of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. And coming up later, a local advanced practice nurse and longtime member of the advocacy group Clinicians in Abortion Care also joins us. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom, Amanda Skinner, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, serves Connecticut and Rhode Island. Amanda, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Now, in February, Hearst, Connecticut reported that Planned Parenthood of Southern New England had to cancel a third of its abortion clinics around the state because it did not have enough physicians available. Again, that was in February. So tell us where the shortage stands now. Um, That's right. In February, we did have to cancel about one third of our abortion clinics. And when we talk about abortion clinics, what we're talking about are the um, uh, times that we have established to be able to provide abortion care in our health centers, um, specifically procedural in-clinic abortions. Um, Unfortunately, uh, we are still at about a two-week wait time for in-clinic abortion appointments. Um, And you know, when somebody is looking to have an abortion procedure, a two-week wait time is a really long wait, and this is just not uh, equitable or just for our patients. Now, when we talk about abortion care, I was wondering if you could um, maybe drill down a little bit more for us in terms of when we talk about in-clinic or aspiration abortions. And then there's also medication abortion, which I understand um, makes up a majority of abortions in our country. And so can you tell us more? That's right. Um, So there are different types of procedures that a patient could have when they're seeking abortion care. Um, As you noted, medication abortion is the most common type of procedure now. Um, Just going backwards a little bit, over 90% of abortions occur in the first trimester of pregnancy. Um, Medication abortion is used in the first trimester and it utilizes two medications, mifepristone and mesoprostol. Um, And that is an approach that can be used up to 11 weeks after the first day of the last period. Um, So that's considered 11 weeks pregnant. Mifepristone blocks the body's own progesterone, which stops the pregnancy from growing. And then the second medicine, mesoprostol, can be taken either right away or up to 48 hours later. And this medicine causes some cramping and bleeding to empty the uterus. Um, This is sort of like 
having a heavy crampy period. Um, and the process that the patient experiences would be similar to an early miscarriage. Then there are also, um, as you noted, in-clinic abortion procedures. Um, the most common of the in-clinic abortion procedures is aspiration abortion, which is um, uh, using a gentle suction procedure to empty the uterus. Uh, it's quite a simple procedure, and it's usually used uh, up to about 14 to 16 weeks after the last period, but again, the vast majority of these occur in the first trimester. And when we talk about Planned Parenthood health centers in Connecticut, are all of them, how many are there and can all of them provide medication abortion? Then how many can provide the in-clinic abortion, Amanda? Right. So at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, um, our service area covers Connecticut and Rhode Island. And across the two states, we have 15 health centers. 14 of those health centers are in Connecticut. Um, and we have a Planned Parenthood health center within about 30 minutes of most of the people, well over 90% of the people in Connecticut. Um, of our 14 health centers, four of those health centers provide in-clinic uh, or procedural abortions. The other 10 um, and those four all provide uh, access to medication abortion. Now, part of the reason uh, we invited you on the show today is to talk about this new state law that also, as part of it, um, it's been called the Safe Harbor Law, will help train and expand the number of medical professionals in our state who can provide abortion care. And so can we talk about that in terms of before the law, who was able to provide um, in-clinic abortions, and now in terms of when the training will be done to help expand access, Amanda? So we are very proud in Connecticut that we had um, forward-thinking legislators 32 years ago who codified the tenets of Roe versus Wade into state law in Connecticut, uh, protecting access to abortion care in Connecticut. Um, that was, uh, you know, very um, sort of ahead of its time thinking at the time, and we had incredible champions who did that. But the law reflected the understanding of of abortion procedures at the time um, and really uh, contemplated only uh, procedural abortions and had language in the law that was specific to physicians. So what we, the way we thought of it was that it was a physician only law. Now, once medication abortion became um, an alternative, um, we had an attorney general's opinion that evaluated the law in Connecticut and made clear that the existing law in Connecticut really only spoke to procedural in-clinic abortion. So once we had that attorney general's opinion in Connecticut, advanced practice clinicians have been able to provide medication abortion. But until the passage of the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act, which became, uh, which was passed in the spring, but uh, went into effect on July 1st, um, only physicians could do the in-clinic or procedural abortions. Now, advanced practice clinicians, um, nurse midwives, advanced practice nurses, and physician assistants are also able to provide uh, in-clinic first trimester aspiration abortions. Now, I understand that there is going to be training by Planned Parenthood for these, uh, these healthcare professionals. Can you tell us about that? And when that training is complete, do you anticipate all of your clinics will be equipped to also perform aspiration abortions? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the safety of our patients is always our top priority. And we know that abortion is one of the safest medical procedures you can have. It's safer than a colonoscopy. 
So when we think about our training program, the top most important thing, most paramount thing for us is ensuring the safety of our patients and the quality of the care that we provide, our, provide to our patients. So we're starting our first cohort of training this summer, and it's intentionally small with one nurse midwife and one advanced practice nurse um, who are gonna go through the training. The training procedure includes both didactic and simulation training, it includes uh, education, and then each trainee will do one procedure day per week with the aim to get them through 30 to 40 observed um, procedures where they have direct oversight from the physician <clears throat> who is training them. Um, our chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England is Dr. Nancy Stanwood. Dr. Stanwood has decades of experience um, in uh, creating um, and leading training programs for healthcare professionals. Uh, specifically, she uh, came to us from Yale Medicine where she ran the family planning residency program. Um, and we are, and she is modeling our training program on a training program from the University of California at San Francisco's um, institute called the Advanced New Standards in Reproductive Health. Um, they did a 2013 study and they developed a model called the TEACH training program. And that training program demonstrated very clearly over 11,000 procedures that were evaluated that advanced practice clinicians can perform uh, aspiration abortion procedures just as safely as physicians can. Uh, the other thing I want to note about training is that the way healthcare professionals um, learn new skills is through training. So, for example, uh, I'm a nurse midwife, and um, I was trained both in my uh, academic environment, but also once I was in clinical practice in new procedures. Um, there were procedures that became customary in practice after I had completed my actual academic environment and we were trained once we were actually in clinical practice. Um, there are advanced practice clinicians who receive post-academic training in IUD insertion. And if you can do an IUD insertion, you can be trained in first trimester uh, aspiration abortion. It is a very um, similar in terms of its complexity or lack of complexity, very similar procedure. You're hearing Amanda Skinner here on Where We Live, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. As we talk about Connecticut's new law that went into effect July 1st, uh, as part of it expands the number of clinicians who can provide in-clinic abortions in our state. Uh, Amanda, we started the conversation talking about the two-week wait. So do you anticipate that with uh, these additional professionals trained, that that wait will decrease? And then we've also got uh, this um, other part that it's harder to, I guess, pin down the number of out-of-state residents who may be coming to Connecticut after the Dobbs decision. Uh, so First of all, you know, we absolutely do anticipate that the week will come down, week to week weight will come down as we're able to train additional clinicians. Um, you know, we are facing not only our own two week weight, but in fact, uh, fewer and fewer OBGYNs are being trained in abortion provision. Um, a study from 10, even 10 years ago, and this has you know, uh, changed since then, showed that while 97% of OBGYNs encounter patients who seek abortion care, at that time, only 14% of OBGYNs provided abortion care. And we anticipate that now, as we see abortion banned across the country, the shortage will only get worse because there are going to be fewer training programs for OBGYNs. 
So it's a critical step to be able to train um, you know, medical professionals because I want to really underscore that advanced practice clinicians are uh, healthcare professionals who are highly trained and skilled within their own scope of practice. Um, to be able to provide uh, this first trimester aspiration abortion procedure is going to expand access. And when we thought about the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act and the need to do this right now, it was really in anticipation of this time uh, where we knew that additional patients were going to need to seek care in states where abortion access was protected. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we talk about the scope of practice within a given provider's expertise, when we think about Connecticut's law now expanding uh, the ability for, um, again, certified nurse midwives, physician assistants, advanced practice, registered nurses, other states had already done this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yes. Um, you know, there were, uh, I think, 14 other states that had already uh, expanded practice for uh, uh, or included in their laws that uh, advanced practice clinicians could provide first trimester aspiration abortion. And as we worked through the process in Connecticut, we did a number of things. First, um, we got an opinion from uh, the State Department of Public Health to confirm that within our state laws governing the practice of advanced practice clinicians, um, and they each have their own uh, uh, statutes in Connecticut, um, that it was clear that first trimester aspiration abortion was within their scope of practice. So I want to be clear that this was not an expansion of scope of practice. This was actually um, a reflection of an appropriate procedure that they were prevented from being able to do based on an outdated law and not, again, not an expansion of their scope of practice, just inclusion of a procedure that's well within their scope of practice. Um, you know, one of the things that we found as we um, went through this process um, was, uh, you know, sort of an expression of concern talking about, quote unquote, mid-level clinicians. And um, the phrase mid-level clinician is demeaning and it suggests a lower standard of care for an advanced practice clinicians. And that's simply not true. Uh, advanced practice clinicians are highly qualified, they're highly trained medical professionals, and there's extensive research demonstrating the safety and quality of care that's provided by advanced practice clinicians. Um, you mentioned that concern. Where did that come from, Amanda? You know, I think, honestly, what we're facing right now um, across the country and even here in Connecticut, uh, in a state where abortion access is protected, uh, is, um, you know, desires to find additional ways to reduce access to care. Uh, and fundamentally, um, these laws, whether they're an abortion ban that bans abortion or an abortion ban that prevents a qualified clinician from being able to provide a particular type of abortion procedure, that these bans are really about uh, being part of a larger agenda to control people's bodies, lives, and futures, uh, to be able to constrict access to healthcare that people deserve. Um, and so uh, I really think uh, that in this particular case, um, this was not, uh, it was more red herring. It was not an actual concern because the research is so clear about the quality of care, both broadly from advanced practice clinicians and very specifically around the provision of advanced um, uh, aspiration abortion procedures 
Um, I think it was just another way to try to constrain access for patients. I understand you've been president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England for, I believe, uh, more than five years. You mentioned earlier that you're a nurse midwife, uh, but when we talk about a nursing model of care, maybe um, talk more about you know why that's such a critical piece of this conversation we talk about expanding access to abortion care. Um, I am a nurse midwife. I was privileged uh, to uh, work as a nurse midwife uh, in comprehensive uh healthcare um, in Connecticut for 10 years um, and care for thousands of patients. Um, And one of the things that I love most about the nursing model of care, one of the reasons I chose midwifery um, as the path for me when I decided to become a a healthcare professional um, was because the nursing model of care is holistic. It recognizes the whole person. It contemplates not just the person's physical well-being, not just their mental well-being, um, but their social and emotional well-being the social systems that they operate in, it really recognizes that people bring their whole lives with them into healthcare and contemplates how we can help support a person through um, whatever healthcare experience they're having um, and consider all of those factors about them, that they are not merely a patient in the eyes of a nurse, but a person um, and a person with an entire life around them. And that is absolutely Uh, critical when we think about access to abortion care, um, particularly when we think about all of the uh, factors that folks face in being, um, you know, in facing challenges in access to healthcare, right? Um, We know that uh, the healthcare system um, is laden with with implicit bias and racism. Uh, We know that folks who are of lower incomes, who who live in rural communities, really struggle to access care. People who may not have childcare or transportation, um, paid time off of work. These are all factors that are not exclusively medical, but do affect a whole person. And that holistic model is so critical to nursing and central to nursing. And I think central to um, being able to provide comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care, including abortion care. My guest today is Amanda Skinner, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. We'll continue talking after the break, including more about how local providers will help out-of-state patients who may come to Connecticut seeking abortion care. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On July 1st, Connecticut's law expanding protections for the right to an abortion went into effect. We've been learning about how the law permits healthcare professionals like certified nurse midwives, advanced practice registered nurses, and physician assistants to be trained to administer first trimester in-clinic or aspiration abortions. Now, the measure also protects patients coming to Connecticut from states with restrictive abortion laws and it protects local abortion providers from lawsuits filed in other states. Planned Parenthood of Southern New England told the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, back in June, that local clinics have already seen a number of people traveling from Texas since Texas banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. With me on Zoom is Amanda Skinner, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, which serves Connecticut and Rhode Island. You can join us, too, with your question or comment, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Amanda, I'm curious what your uh, clinicians in our region are seeing now in the wake of the Dobbs decision when it comes to out-of-state patients. Well, we didn't even have to wait for Dobbs, unfortunately, because in September of 2021, um, Texas's law SB8 went into effect um, as one of the most extreme abortion bans in the country. That law um, prohibited abortion um, after six weeks in Texas. And so over the past, you know, um, nine or 10 months or so, we've seen about a dozen patients traveling to Connecticut um, from Texas for abortion care. And, you know, I just would love for people to contemplate for a moment the incredible difficulty um, and burden that is placed on a patient to travel thousands of miles to receive healthcare. Um, and as I said earlier, so often uh, the patients who are most harmed by these bans um, are people who struggle to access basic preventive healthcare already. Communities of color, people of low incomes, people living in rural communities, members of the LGBTQ plus community, specifically trans and non-binary people. So as we think about who these bans really harm, that's who they harm. Um, now, when we think about, you know, our experience over the last 12 months uh, or uh, 10 months or so uh, with only about a dozen patients from Texas, of course, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, we anticipate that 26 states across the country are going to enact abortion bans. Um, and uh, those bans are going to cover such a large geography of the country, upwards of 40 million people of reproductive age who could conceive or carry a pregnancy are going to no longer have access to abortion in their own communities. Um, and that means we're going to see more and more people having to travel um, to receive this kind of care. What I can say about our own clinicians at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England is that they are galvanized. They are proud to provide comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care to our patients, including abortion care. And they are ready to be there for every patient who needs us, no matter what. 
When we talk about the patient population that Planned Parenthood serves, so you're saying eight out of 10 of those patients are people living uh, at or below the federal poverty line, a majority are people of color and who struggle to access care, Amanda? That's absolutely true. 85% of our patients live at or below 250% of the federal poverty level. But again, the federal poverty level is so egregiously low that 250% of the federal poverty level is also an experience of living that is decidedly low income and um, challenging for folks. A large majority of our patients, about 59% of our patients are people of color. Um, And you know, what people know about Planned Parenthood is that they will come to us and receive non-judgmental, comprehensive care, care where they will be considered a whole person when they walk through the door um, from healthcare providers who know them, uh, healthcare professionals who they trust. Those are our advanced practice clinicians. Um, And, you know, in an environment where there's no judgment, just care. And when we talk about abortion care for those who may come to our state seeking abortion care, can you talk about the, the calculus that your clinicians are under um, in terms of making sure that they um, spend enough time here for any uh, post recovery? And you know the, the the challenges when we think about some of those more those states those restrictive abortion laws where people are coming from. Right. I mean, the fall of Roe has ushered in unprecedented circumstances in the United States. The uh, legal and policy environment right now is chaotic and um, really, you know, all bets are off and it remains to be seen um, what laws are going to be passed in each state. We've seen some of the restrictions that are being passed and enacted, but this is really just the beginning. Um, And so we can't say for certain what these uh, varying laws across 26 different states where there will probably be multiple, not, you know, not just bans in their states, but, you know, multiple other restrictions passed. Uh, What those will definitely mean for patients or providers, it's just hard to say right now um, in this very uncertain environment. Mm -hmm. What we do know um, is that the protections in the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act Um, which included the expansion to include advanced practice clinicians, but also included some protections um, for patients who seek abortion care in Connecticut and for providers who provide abortion care in Connecticut to patients from out of state, are a starting point to ensuring that abortion remains safe and accessible here in our state. Um, As of right now, no state has actually uh, attempted to enforce restrictions on abortion outside of its own borders. And no state has passed legislation that would explicitly um, allow that kind of cross-border enforcement. But while that has not happened yet, uh, that doesn't mean that won't happen. And I think, uh, you know, we are going to see those kinds of efforts. um, And it will be crucial for us to evaluate each law state by state to ensure that we are protecting those patients who come to us and our clinicians as they're providing care to those patients. I believe the state of Missouri uh, is uh, contemplating a bill uh, that would limit uh, interstate travel. And so that's what you're talking about, Amanda. That is what I'm talking about, yes. 
And when we think about abortion care, I know on the show in the past, we've talked about um, funds to help pay for travel. But also when we think about, um, I mentioned uh, post-recovery and lodging and like all of the other um, things that people may not be thinking about just when someone makes an appointment uh, in our state. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. Sure. Um, you know, we have, again, already experienced this with patients coming from Texas. Um, and at Planned Parenthood, we had been planning for this. We had been anticipating, uh, you know, that uh, there were at least good chances that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Um, and we had the experience from Texas to ensure that we were developing and building systems to support patients working in partnership with all of the other entities within the abortion access and sort of sexual and reproductive health and rights uh, movement partners, reproductive justice organizations, independent abortion funds, independent abortion providers, abortion providers like Planned Parenthood. You know, what's really critical right now is that we are working in partnership with each other um, to provide the most seamless uh, and well-supported experience for patients. Because you're absolutely right. Um, if you are traveling thousands of miles for a healthcare procedure, you have to contemplate um, childcare for the children that you have because the majority of people who have abortion procedures uh, or seek abortion care already have children. Uh, you have to contemplate how you're gonna get time away from work. You have to think about uh, what kinds of travel you're going to be able to access. Are you going to travel by car? Are you going to need to fly somewhere? Um, do you have access to those? Do you have the financial means to resource those? And if you don't, where can you access those resources? Independent abortion funds are a really uh, great, important um, resource for that for folks. Um, uh, and then once you get to the place where you're going to have your um, abortion, then you need to be able to um, receive that care safely, uh, recover, uh, complete, hope, likely complete your abortion procedure before you return back to a state where there is, is a ban. Um, again, with the legal environment being so chaotic, um, what uh, it, it's it's going to have to be evaluated sort of law by law, state by state, to ensure that we are um, from a procedural uh, sort of process perspective, um, working with those patients to ensure that we are protecting their safety, uh, not just medically, but also from the laws in their states that might criminalize them simply for accessing healthcare. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be talking more about, again, uh, Connecticut's efforts to expand access to abortion care, including talking to uh, medical professionals who will be trained, again, to provide in-clinic uh, aspiration or in-clinic abortions uh, in that first trimester. Uh, but I have to ask, Amanda, we've been talking a lot about uh, this law in Connecticut that uh, provides protections, also expanding access. But when you think about um, the people who are marginalized, the people, the patients that Planned Parenthood serves, what more the state can do to make sure that they have access to care? And, you know, I'm thinking of, of people regardless of their immigration status. Absolutely. Um, uh, absolutely. So, you know, we know uh, that there are terrible 
disparities in healthcare. Um, and one of the most significant disparities is in access to insurance. So we would love to see an expansion of Husky for people in Connecticut, regardless of their immigration status, because we want all people to access the healthcare that they need and deserve, including basic preventive healthcare. And we know that, um, you know, a healthy community, healthy members of the community are you know, uh, productive members of the community, engaged members of the community, that keeping people uh, healthy and well is good for all of us, right? Um, the other thing I really uh, want to make sure to note when we think about the um, the disparities in healthcare and the communities that are impacted um, by these bans and where we could focus additional energies um, is for example, when we think about the racial disparities in maternal fetal health. So again, the majority of our patient population are uh, people of color. Um, in 2020, the Centers for Disease Control reported that the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women was nearly three times the rate for non-Hispanic white women in the United States. And when we think about the impact of abortion bans, the University of Colorado Boulder did a study and showed that banning abortion nationwide could lead to a 33% increase in pregnancy-related deaths among Black women compared to prior rates. So those prior rates were already shameful. Um, and then those could go up by 33% uh, among Black women if abortion was banned nationwide. Um, so we also need to be really leaning in to addressing barriers to all healthcare services, um, comprehensive uh, prenatal care, access to doulas, um, comprehensive, you know, unfettered access to, uh, to and education about uh, contraception, about, you know, ha people having the information they need to make the best choices for their own lives, for their own bodies and futures. Um, and then again, um, taking down those barriers that people face to care. Um, even here in Connecticut, uh, it's not just insurance coverage. Um, it's also having sufficient paid time off of work. It's also having really excellent access to transportation to healthcare uh, and physical access to healthcare. One of the reasons that we continue to maintain uh, so many health centers uh, in our communities uh, at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England is because we know that um, even in a world of telehealth, physical access to your healthcare provider, having them within a, you know, accessible um, uh, physical space to you is so critical for people being able to get the care that they need. Again, you're hearing Amanda Skinner here on Where We Live, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. After a short break, we're going to hear from one of the reproductive health professionals in Connecticut who will be able to perform in-clinic abortions with this change in state law. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a comment on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we've been talking about Connecticut's law that protects a patient's right to abortion care in our state, including expanding access by training more health care professionals to administer in-clinic first trimester abortions. These professionals include advanced practice registered nurses, physician assistants, and nurse midwives. Joining us now on Zoom is Loren Fields, an APRN at Planned Parenthood, also a lecturer in nursing at Yale School of Nursing. Loren, welcome to our show. Thank you. And what does this change mean for you and your patients? This change carries a lot of meaning for me and the people that I take care of. My journey towards becoming a nurse practitioner now started about 15 years ago. And pretty much as soon as I decided to enter this profession, I had a vision of my practice that meant that I would be there and I would be ready to take care of as many needs as possible for the people that I took care of. And, And that included abortion care and miscarriage management and aspects of their primary care. And so um, as a nursing student, I sought out many educational experiences. I attended conferences. I got advanced training really with this vision of a very holistic practice where I could offer patients their options when they had early pregnancies or early pregnancy complications, and I would be there and prepared to um, offer them the care that they needed. And uh, because I chose to build my practice in the state of Connecticut, where we had a physician-only law uh, for the last uh, 15 years or so of my career, I've not been able to provide aspiration abortion. I've had to Uh, refer patients to other providers, other clinics when they need that service. And so this change in the law um, makes it possible now that there could be a future where I could take care of those patients myself with the advanced training that I have and with the relationships that I already have with them. So when earlier when we talked about scope of care or what falls within a provider's expertise to offer a patient, as you've outlined, this was really important that you were, you would be able to provide procedural abortions in the services you provide your patients. Yes, absolutely. I you know I know that um, relationships, trust, um, are are essential to high quality healthcare. And I've also spent my whole career working at Planned Parenthood as Amanda has outlined. Um, we take care of a lot of folks who um, have issues accessing healthcare. And so to be able to not have to send patients away to a different clinic or a different provider to give them the care that they need um, is, is huge for their ability to access quality health care. I understand you testified in support of this portion of Connecticut's safe harbor, now a law. Uh, tell us about that testimony, why it was important to you based on your advocacy work in the past. Sure. So um, 
back in 2009, um, as a eager nursing student, I attended my first National Abortion Federation meeting and I connected with a community there um, that's now called Clinicians in Abortion Care. Um, but it was a group of um, advanced practice clinicians, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, physicians, assistants who were um, really passionate about uh having abortion be included in the scope of practice of advanced practice clinicians. And so I, that community was an important home for me for about a decade. Um, I was a, a leader in their advisory committee for about six years. And so I had really spent the last decade learning a lot about scope of practice as it relates to abortion care. Um, the mechanisms for advancing legal change. And so when the call came forward this spring for clinicians to testify about what a legal change like this could mean, I, I felt well prepared to speak to that. Mm. Uh, Amanda Skinner is still with us again, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. So when we hear from medical professionals like Loren about uh, the importance of, of the care that they provide their patients, uh, I wonder if you can talk more about that when we think about the clinicians at Planned Parenthood who are the primary care providers for these patients. That's absolutely right. And we know that at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, our advanced practice clinicians are the providers who know their patients best. They're the people our patients see for their well exams, for STI testing and treatment, for vaccines. For our patients, they are their trusted frontline providers of healthcare. Um, and so uh, when we think about like, what is high quality healthcare? Um, high quality healthcare is patient-centered. Well, seeing a provider that you know and trust when you're the patient is patient-centered. High quality healthcare is timely. Uh, it's care that people get when they need it. Well, expanding um, practice, uh, expanding the, the ability for our advanced practice clinicians to be able to provide this procedure means that we will be able to provide more timely care. It's safe and effective. Well, we already know that that's true of aspiration abortion procedures, right? Um, again, because the research shows it so, so clearly. So fundamentally, uh, for me, this is about uh, quality of care and the experience that our patients have, um, being able to see the healthcare provider that they know and trust for the care that they need when they need it in a safe, high-quality way. Uh, Lorraine, uh, you know, when we think about uh, the moment that our country is in, I'm just wondering, you know, personally what this means for you that you'll be able to also provide uh, this, uh, this care within your practice. Well, this this possibility really opens up for me, as I was sharing a bit ago, a fuller coming to light what my original vision for my practice as a nurse practitioner was, which was um, to be able to offer as comprehensive of gynecologic and sexual and primary care to the people that I take care of as possible. And so this um, this change brings me closer to uh, that vision that I had for my practice. And earlier, uh, Amanda was outlining, you know, depending on the state a person lives, you know, the resistance uh, to expanding access, uh, whether there be concern about uh, what type of medical professional can provide this care. How do you respond to that, given your expertise? 
Well, I really appreciate what Amanda said about not thinking about this like an expansion of scope of practice, but rather um, looking at this as um, giving legal support uh, to an aspect of care that there has been widespread agreement from the medical and nursing perspective for a long time that this is appropriate care for advanced practice clinicians to provide. And if you look at um, the history of our professional societies, the organizations um, that represent our profession, you can go back to the 1990s actually and see statements um, from leading professional societies, um, including the American College of Nurse Midwives, the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, saying that um, not only do we think that this is in the appropriate scope of practice of these clinicians, we actually uh, believe it will help resolve uh, part of an existing public health crisis that we had because of course, um, even prior to um, the most recent events, we have had access issues to abortion care um, existing long before this year. Thank you. Again, that's Loren Fields, an APRN at Planned Parenthood and a lecturer in nursing at Yale School of Nursing. Uh, before we run out of time, Amanda Skinner, I wanted to go back to you. You had mentioned briefly uh, telehealth, and I'm wondering about uh, telehealth and abortion care from Planned Parenthood's perspective, especially for patients who can't travel to Connecticut based on different laws. Can you tell us more? Well, there are a lot of nuances in the laws of telehealth, um, uh, particularly as it relates to medication abortion uh, via telehealth. Broadly speaking, telehealth is an incredible tool in our toolbox to expand access to healthcare. Um, and we've learned so much about ensuring high quality patient-centered telehealth throughout the pandemic. And I think that's been a, a, a real transformation in healthcare more broadly, not just uh, at Planned Parenthood, but really in the whole healthcare delivery system. Um, now, that being said, um, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, the the laws and states are changing rapidly. Telehealth is broadly speaking governed by state law, um, and for a clinician to be able to provide care to a person in another state, the clinician has to be licensed in that state and abide by the laws in that state. So. If abortion is banned in a particular state um, uh, without dissecting every single state's laws, you know, it, it is most likely that telemedicine abortion will be banned in that state if the patient is physically in that state. Um, now, of course, there are, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, uh, but there are a lot of uh, brilliant thinkers thinking about how we can maximize the power of telehealth to expand access to care um, for folks as it relates to, to medication abortion. Um, and certainly here uh, in Connecticut, we are working with our uh, with the administration um, and with our legislators to ensure that we have uh, as much clarity as possible uh, about our own ability to provide uh, telemedicine abortion um, in Connecticut. Uh, that is something we are still working on. And in the meantime, we are using technology and telemedicine um, to reach our patients for other sexual and reproductive health care, mm. uh, things like uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, for prevention um, of HIV, uh, for urinary tract infections, for medication abortion follow-up visits, um, for uh, 
you know, prescription refills and for gender, some gender affirming care. So we are maximizing um, the way that we can use telehealth now and have built really good systems. But currently we are, are still working with the state uh, to, uh, to ensure that, um, uh, that telemedicine uh, is an alternative for medication abortion. So all hour we've been talking about Connecticut's law, but meanwhile we know that federal efforts to protect abortion care are stalled, including the the Freedom to Travel for Health Care Act. Amanda, just with a couple of minutes left, you know why this is so important uh, to be approved by Congress? Oh well, it's incredibly important because of exactly what we've been talking about today. Um, you know, the the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs essentially stripped away a fundamental right the first time in history that the Supreme Court has taken away a right it previously granted um, and put the decision making about people's health care and bodies, lives and futures in the hands of state legislators um, and state politicians. And so um, as we talked about, it's while it hasn't happened yet, it is very possible that states where they ban abortion will endeavor to enact laws that would also ban cross-state travel. So a federal law protecting people saying that people can travel to other states for care that is legal in those states, um, that their state of residence does not prevent them from being able to access care where it is legal um, is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, it's, it's appalling enough that somebody's zip code is going to determine whether or not they de- deserve or are able to access care um, in that zip code. Uh, it's even more appalling to think uh, that it would prevent them from accessing care in other states where that care is legal. So it's it's absolutely crucial. And I uh, would say, you know, the same is true for the Women's Health Protection Act, um, which would codify the tenets of Roe. Um, into federal law protecting abortion access across the country because what we really want um, is people to be able to make their own decisions about their bodies and have access to the care that they need in their own communities. Again, that's Amanda Skinner, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. We appreciate your time with us today on the show, Amanda. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you today. And also thanks to Loren Fields, an APRN at Planned Parenthood and a lecturer in nursing at Yale School of Nursing. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, more about telemedicine, including visits surging when the pandemic began. And now doctors across Connecticut say many of those patients have opted to stay with televisits. We'll find out more tomorrow.